Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. These days, it seems we live and die by the model. You can't turn on your phone or open the newspaper or watch the television without being hit in the face by some sort of model or graph or chart that purports to show you how fast the coronavirus is likely to spread, when it will peak, whether it will plateau, how many people will die, you name it. These graphs and charts and models are constantly changing, and sometimes they are in conflict with one another. So how should we be making sense of all of this? Here to help is Carl Bergstrom. He's a computational biologist at the University of Washington who's got a deep background both in epidemiology and in model building and in model analysis. He's also an expert on the spread of misinformation. With his co-author, Jevin D. West, he's written a forthcoming book, Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. I spoke to Carl on Monday afternoon. Carl, you are by profession some combination of a modeler and an explainer of models and a debunker of bad models. And we now live in model world 24-7. So my first question before I ask you to do all three of those things simultaneously is, how weird has this time been for you? That's a, that's a good question. I think it's hard. When you're in the middle of it, you don't even really pause to think about whether it's weird or normal. It just is. Um, the thing that strikes me as the, as the strangest, in a sense, is that uh, I spent many years doing infectious disease epidemiology and then by various convoluted paths, ended up over the last few years studying the spread of misinformation on social networks. 
And uh, to have those two things come together the way that they're coming together right now has been really striking. Let's start with a model that you've spoken in favor of, in fact, strongly in favor of, namely the simple model that produced the expression, which has now entered the lingo of flattening the curve. Say a word about why that basic curve with the flattening was so effective. Well, I think it's uh, the notion of a very simple idea made concrete with a nice picture. And so, you know, the most important thing about that picture was that it is you know, worth a thousand words, and those thousand words are worth thousands of lives, I believe, because they showed people at the time why one argument that was floating around was not a good argument. And what had been floating around at the time was, look, we're all going to, you know, people were saying, we're all going to get this, or a large fraction of us are going to get this, and uh, there's nothing we can do about it, so let's get this over with as quick as possible. And so there was talk about taking it on the chin, there was talk about, you know, why would you prolong the uh, economic disruption and so forth. And one thing that people hadn't been thinking about was the uh, sort of uh, way that if we didn't do anything to control the pandemic, then we would badly exceed hospital capacity. And so what this one little picture did was stress that you have to worry not only about the area under the pandemic curve or the epidemic curve, uh, but you also have to worry about the height of that epidemic curve at any given time because we have a limited hospital capacity. And for this particular disease, ICU care saves lives. So it just shifted the framework of people's thinking in a very simple way. And I think you know people definitely started rallying to this notion of flattening the curve. And, and people now uh, take that for granted. And it's time to start thinking about new models and new, new pictures now that this is something we all take for granted. But uh, you know, I think certainly some of the reason we haven't exceeded healthcare capacity any worse than we have, is that people kind of took this message to heart and realized that you know, there is an a important public health uh, role that we play by trying to slow down the spread of this early on. Carl, I want to ask you a sort of philosophical question about models that's been really very much front of mind for me. And that is, broadly speaking, the relationship between a model that's meant to tell you what you should do in life, a kind of normative model, like the model that you were talking about, the flattening the curve model, and a descriptive model, a model that's meant to describe the world as it is or as you think there's some probability of it being. This is a very hard line to draw, but I think it's a distinction that really matters because we're in this delicate moment now where people are observing that models that were meant to say, hey, if you don't do anything, you'll have results X and Y and Z, are now giving way to new models that say, well, we've updated the models in light of the social distancing that we've done. And that's leading some part of the public, including even the somewhat educated public, I think, to say, well, wait a minute, maybe those initial models were grossly overstated. And it seems to me that part of the distinction here is the difference between a model that is meant to say, take action, and a model that's meant to say, here's a description of the world updating for what we have done. Could you say a word about that distinction? Yeah, I mean, it's not actually a distinction I had been thinking along about. I mean, I would have thought, um, you know, more about uh, the fact that the models have a feedback in terms of the models influence our behavior, which influences the data that go into the model, you know, as you go through this loop. And so what's happening, of course, is that early models, including the flat and the curve, uh, just conceptual model, uh, influence people's behavior, which then changes the situation that we're in. And so now people can say, oh, well, you know, that was stupid. Why did we flatten the curve? Hospitals haven't been overrun. It's like, well, yeah, hospitals haven't been overrun precisely because we blocked down places and flattened the curve. And that's why 
you know, except for in New York City, essentially, most places are managing pretty reasonably in terms of hospital capacity. I'd, I'd kind of, rather than saying there are models that are normative and, and models that are descriptive, I would say there's the models can be used in both of those directions. And so you can come up with a model uh, like the flatten the curve model, and that sort of describes two different things that could happen. And then you have to draw your own normative conclusions from that. So, you know, I, we could have this big, fast peak. We'd be done with it by the middle of the summer. We'd all be back, you know, those of us who are still alive to our normal lives. But we would have had to live through this period where the hospitals are massively over capacity. Uh, we would have lost friends and relatives and neighbors and so on. Or we can try this other approach, which we don't even know exactly how we're going to manage to keep this thing down on in the future. But we can at least get ourselves onto that track so that we can solve the problem and then if we do that, we're probably going to be looking at a more protracted period of life being different, but we're uh, going to avoid these you know, really catastrophic periods of, of exceeding health capacity. So I guess that would be sort of my distinction, which is perhaps a little different than the one you're drawing. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is the model itself is at least arguably neutral, and then it can be used either to make a descriptive point about how the world is, or a normative point. And I guess my pushback on that, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, would be that because, as you say, you're, you're modeling either taking into account probable effects on the world or not taking those things into account, it's tricky, maybe not impossible, but tricky to separate out a model that says, hey, this is the way the world, you know, take it or leave it, but this is the way the world will be if you do nothing, versus here's a model based on what we think will happen if you do take these steps. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, the, I agree with you about that. And I also, with respect to pushback, I mean, I push back on making you know, this claim that they're absolutely neutral myself because I mean, models are tools. Models are designed for purposes. And so people are making each of these models for some particular reason. You know, the flatten the curve was made to try to help people see that it's not just the total number of cases, it's also the timing of those cases, whether they all happen at the same time or not. There, it had a purpose. I think you can kind of you can kind of see them that way. When I look at some of the models that people are doing now, for example, the there's this IHME model that that's being used a lot that predicts hospital needs by state and also death rates by state and so on. Um, and so that's a model that's been designed to be used precisely for thinking about, you know, what kind of equipment, how many beds do we need, and so on. So, you know, even though you can say, well, it's just a model of what happens, it's still designed to this purpose. And then once that purpose comes in, then, you know, that purpose is usually to make a decision. And so the whole normative uh, aspect of modeling flows into that through that channel, I think. If we're going to try to reopen the economy cautiously before we have the capacity assuming we ever get the capacity to do millions and millions of tests, then there are going to have to be, as it were, mini spikes in the, the curve. Yes. We just want those spikes to be below the point where they overwhelm the hospitals. What's a model that sort of that pictures that? I mean, is it a kind of sine curve model where the, the top of the curve is just beneath the number of people who will flood the hospitals? Is that what we're realistically talking about until such time as we have either a vaccine or very extensive testing? Well, I'm not very optimistic about that approach uh, because you don't get something like a nice smooth sine curve. What you usually get is a pretty rapid ramp up to being at hospital capacity and a fairly slow drop off and then a rapid ramp up and a fairly slow drop off. So you actually spend most of your time with social distancing still on and uh, only little gaps with social distancing off. That's what came out of the uh, the uh, Imperial College model of the scenario. And then 
There have been other plans along these lines, a two-day workweek plan that Aria Lines Group has proposed and so on, and they have this general form. So that's one problem. The other problem is you're dealing in these cases with exponential growth and imperfect measurement. And so when you try to manage uh, exponential growth to sort of top it out right below hospital capacity, that's a very difficult call to make given the amount of information you have. And so what's going to happen is you're going to miss, and you're going to miss by a lot because it's exponential growth. So I think the other thing, you know, there was a nice paper that, uh, you know, looked at, at sort of uh, optimal management of, of a pandemic like this and keeping it under hospital capacity. But the conclusion uh, informally stated, you know, was essentially don't try to get cute with epidemic growth. And I think that's kind of a key message that comes out of modeling there is it's, you know, as soon as you start thinking about the uncertainties that are in place, you recognize that actually keeping it under capacity is an almost impossible challenge. You've been making a really powerful point about the likelihood of best case and worst case scenarios, which I think is quirky and totally non-obvious to, to the layperson of whom I'm a good example. So we often think, well, there are two models. There's a best case scenario and a worst case scenario. And in life, things will probably be somewhere in the middle. That's how we often think. It's a kind of Goldilocks uh, exactly. principle yeah. that we, we go through life. And you have been arguing that that's exactly wrong in thinking about an epidemic. Say more for us. Well, epidemics are, are an interesting kind of dynamical process. They're sort of attractors in an epidemic. You, have, uh, you can have a dynamic where you relatively quickly suppress an epidemic and you go to a relatively small number of cases, or you can have a dynamic where it sort of blows up and races through the population. And whether you have this former case where you suppress it or the latter case where you fail uh, depends basically on this number or not that everyone's talking about, basic reproductive numbers. So it's how many cases does a does an initial infected case generate uh, downstream. And of course, that number depends not only on the properties of the virus, but on the amounts of social distancing we're doing and so forth. And so as we've gone into this lockdown period and the social distancing, we've tried to knock our knot down pretty low. And we've got it down around one, but we don't know exactly where it is. And so if it's a little bit below one, then each case generates fewer than one additional cases, and we get this exponential fall off in the number of cases. And we might end up with, say, about 3% of the U.S. having been infected by the virus uh, after the first wave. If we're just a little bit above one, then each case generates more than one new cases, and it grows and grows and it grows exponentially, and so it races through the whole population. And if that happens, you're going to end up with you know, somewhere in the range of 30 to 70% of the population infected. In the absence of uh, continued intervention by people changing their behavior so that this R0, R0 is adjusted over time, you really end up on one of these two trajectories or not. I, you know, uh, compare it to rolling a ball down a ridge or a fence line. I mean, it, that ball may stay on the, on the ridge line for a while, but sooner or later, it's going to drop off of one side or the other just because you're your trajectory is just slightly in, in one direction or the other. And so the sort of the, what happens in a pandemic is a bit like that. What's really interesting is something that people have suggested to me that we may have this uh, element of what physicists call self-organized criticality, where actually, even though you've got this unstable point where R0 is one, where you're kind of rolling down the ridge line, the pandemic starts to take off and really accelerate, then people get scared and they do more social distancing and they push it back down. If the pandemic starts to get shut down, then people start to relax and they do less. And so you've got on one hand, you've got the fundamental dynamics of the pandemic. If everyone's behavior was held constant, we'd either have a great big one or we'd shut it down pretty quickly. People are modulating their behavior and they may actually be pushing us along this. Uh, along the ridge, yeah. Along yeah. the ridge, exactly. So yeah. that's an interesting sort of second layer on all of this. 
I'm glad you raised that issue because that's exactly what I was going to ask about. I mean, in a dynamic picture where we're always reacting to whatever we see happening out there, you could imagine a government at least trying very hard to get its people to titrate going to work and then coming home from work and going back and forth and then getting some of a thing in the middle. I thought in that context of the Swedish example, I mean, Sweden is sort of functioning as a kind of experiment where they're doing a fair amount of social distancing, but in other ways they aren't. It'll be really interesting to see. Maybe they will turn out somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly possible. I think even there, you're kind of unlikely to because not only do you have this system that's, you know, with exponential growth, but then you've got long delays. So there are big delays between when people are infected and when we start to really observe the consequences of those infections. You know, with full on testing, it would be you know, five days to a week. Uh, if we're waiting for people to end up in the hospital, we're looking at more like 10 to 15 days. And so whenever you're trying to you know, do control on a system that has uh, you know, exponential growth, amplification, and major delays, that control becomes extremely hard, and you're overshooting. You know, you're you're fishtailing and overcorrecting, and and uh, you're going to end up off the road. We'll be back in just a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered... How can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, 
I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Can I ask you to put on your misinformation scientist hat? What are the most egregious examples that you've seen thus far in this pandemic of misinformation with observable real-world consequences? You know, unfortunately, I think some of the most egregious misinformation in terms of the magnitude of the consequences has been coming out of the White House. And it was the protracted period where there was a serious effort to downplay the magnitude of what was going on. And that delayed the national response in a whole bunch of ways. And I think it also has the consequence of really uh, hemorrhaging the trust that people need in order to comply over the long term with public health measures, which are more or less our only way of controlling the pandemic right now. So if you have a story that is changing all the time, um, where you've got uh, different agencies uh, presenting different versions of the story, you're hearing uh, from some that that this is going to go away on its own, uh, that it's on the way down, it's going to disappear in April, whatever the case is. And then the same government has other agencies telling you this is a serious threat, there's going to be protracted uh, human-to-human spread in the United States, etc. People start to not be sure who they can trust. And when that happens, then it becomes harder and harder to manifest the political will that you need to take unpopular measures like closing schools, closing non-essential businesses and the like. So I think that in terms of like the measurable consequences, one of the worst things that's happened in terms of uh, misinformation has been this initial attempt to downplay the seriousness of the pandemic in order to, I think, prop up the stock market on a first order. You have a book uh, coming out soon with the wonderful title, Calling Bullshit. Presumably when you were writing the book was before the pandemic broke out. What were the things that at the time you wanted to call bullshit on? And then maybe from there we'll go to how that's relevant in the present moment. So when we wrote the book, we were really thinking about the ways that quantitative information is used to mislead people. So what we thought was very, very important was to teach people that you are not at the mercy of the person who's bringing data and statistical analyses and machine learning or whatever it is to the table. You don't have to just accept those because you are not a PhD statistician or you're not a computer scientist or whatever. The basic way that we think about this is that with any of these systems, you've got 
uh, you know, when people are drawing conclusions based on data, they collect a bunch of data. The data then are put into some kind of machinery, um, which you can think of as a black box. Out the other end, then come some results, that, and then people draw conclusions from the results. And the bullshit is rarely in the black box, what we find. So the bullshit is rarely an artifact of the technical construction of the model. Of course, there are cases where that is what happens, but that's a strong minority of the bullshit that we see out there. Almost all of it is because people have picked data that are not necessarily representative or appropriate for the question that they're asking. They're comparing apples and oranges. They've got a biased sample. There are all these kinds of things that can go wrong. Or people get results out and then they draw unjustified conclusions from the from the results. They overgeneralize. They infer causality where they've only got an observational study and only know about correlation, these kinds of things. And so what we wanted to really stress with the book was that you don't have to be sort of held hostage by people that have the numbers because you can use basic critical thinking skills that anybody has in order to see through this sort of stuff. You say, well, are these data appropriate for answering that question? Uh, do these conclusions actually follow from those results? I love the idea that careful critical thinking and analyzing the premises can really help you identify bullshit when it is being dealt to you. I want to ask you, though, about a variant on that, which... I think may be pretty different that we've been seeing throughout the current pandemic, which is that it's not just that non-experts in fields are calling bullshit on models. They also think that they can build their own models better. And at first I thought to myself, this problem is mostly out there on Medium or it's, you know, the the coworker in the office. And I actually wrote a column uh, for Bloomberg where I write a column saying, well, the amateur epidemiologist, please just sit down and shut up. Mm-hmm. So this phenomenon seems to be kind of everywhere right now. And I'm wondering if there's, like, is there a cognitive thing going on here? If people think they can find a problem, which is true by your view, they also think that they can then devise a better model. And at least as far as I can tell, that's not true. They usually cannot devise a better model. Well, I think, you know, on, on one hand, we definitely need input from a lot of sources. And so I think that it's really important to recognize that there are going to be good ideas coming from outside of the epidemiology community. At the same time, one wants to be aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, the basic idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect is you don't know enough to know you're wrong, essentially. And so you think that you have a very good uh, understanding. And so the Dunning-Kruger effect typically has this sort of, you know, uh, non-monotone distribution of people's confidences. If they don't know much, they're quite confident. If they know some, they aren't confident. And if they know enough, they start to get relatively confident again. And so we're seeing a lot from both of those confident peaks, um, professional epidemiologists and otherwise. There are some really good ideas coming from people that are not professional epidemiologists. But I think one of the things that's that's hard is when things are presented as uh, fact instead of suggestion, and particularly in a context where, boy, these stupid epidemiologists, they don't even know about such and such. So this is the sort of the not helpful side of things. I'm, I'm personally collaborating with a number of people who are outside of the epidemiology community, not only economists on the economics side, but, you know, for example, uh, been consulting with a group of, um, of baseball analytics people that wanted to find a small tractable problem that they could contribute to because they're really, really good at uh, figuring out things from numbers. And, uh, yeah. you know, they, they called me and, and were, uh, they understood that they needed some background in order to be able to do something useful. They couldn't just sit down and make their own model. And so we spent a lot of time talking about what sort of an unsolved problem that they could take a crack at. And, you know, I think that kind of thing is really constructive. So, 
I guess, yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Well, if you're helping sabermetrics to save the world, that'll be a, a further a further contribution that you're making. Yeah, well, it's kind of it's kind of fun, you know. We're trying to figure out how to epidemiologists are trying to figure out how to save baseball, and these guys are trying to figure out how to do epidemiology. So it's it's a nice combination. A mutual assistance society in a moment when we when we very much need that. Yeah, Carl, what am I not asking you that you think I should be asking you? What are what are salient problems on any of your dimensions of expertise that you're observing that you think people should know about? I think at this point, uh, the really big salient problem is to think about how do we emerge from the situation that we're in now. We all need to do that. We can't wait around for 12 to 18 months. And so what are the possible solutions? And there are so many different disciplines that are involved in finding these solutions. Uh, you know, How do we need to restructure the economic system so that we can, in healthy ways, help businesses weather this shutdown uh, you're asking those questions at the same time you're trying to figure out things you know that are really technical immunology problems like how long does immunity last what fraction of people generate it uh, is it even safe for people who've had the disease go back to work etc so somehow we need to find very good ways for us to as a extremely broad community sit down and talk across these boundaries without epidemiologists saying that economists don't know anything about the economy or vice versa so that's really important, finding that way to communicate. I think you know, the other, you know, one of the other things that has been a really pressing challenge that none of us saw coming really was we've, uh, you know, we've been planning for a crisis like this for a long time and thinking about what it would look like and how we might react and, and you know, hoping it would never come in the, in the epidemiology community we have. And now we're here, of course, and the thing we weren't really thinking about was about the way that all of this was going to be uh, so heavily politicized that we feel like we're fighting a battle on two fronts. We're fighting a battle against the virus, but then we're fighting a battle against misinformation around the virus that's being promulgated you know, by people up to it, including the White House. And so that's a challenge and threat that we just hadn't been thinking about seriously. And I think that was a missed opportunity on our part to not be thinking about the information side of this. Do you think that's partly the result of a kind of unexpressed but mistaken sense of cultural superiority. So I know epidemiologists who've worked extensively in sub-Saharan Africa on Ebola, for example, and who were acutely attuned and have written extensively about how do you deal with public misinformation, but also with governmental distortions, you know, regimes that aren't willing to play ball or that distort facts and circumstances under some conditions. And that was, I think, pretty commonplace in the epidemiological community and the public health community as well, but there was somehow this unspoken thought that that can't happen here. Not that a pandemic can't happen here, but that in the United States or in some Western European country, we would all have Angela Merkel's, you know, we would have rational, exactly. calm, yeah. political leadership. And of course, that's totally false. Right. And it was knowably false, I would have said in advance. I, I think that's a, a very sharp observation. And I completely agreed. I, at least I fell into that trap. I don't want to speak for everybody. You're completely right that there are people working in other parts of the world that are well aware of these challenges. And, and I just don't think we were thinking as seriously about it as we should have been. You know, Obama was in some ways, in a lot of ways, closer to that Merkel mold. And we weren't really thinking about that. I mean, I remember going back to uh, Bush administration and thinking, you know, in the discussions with the Bush administration, there were concerns about the degree to which the government should step in and, and be involved in something like pandemic planning. Why can't it be privatized and so on? So we had these sort of, you know, ideological disagreements about the best way to handle, you know, something like a, like pandemic planning. But we very much had the sense that if the thing actually broke out, we'd all be on the same page and we'd all acknowledge that it was happening. 
and we try to do the best we could to get rid of it. And there wouldn't be this period where we were pretending that it wasn't happening at all. Carl, thank you for an extremely illuminating uh, conversation and for your work. And please keep up calling bullshit on the things that need bullshit called uh, and clarifying things for us. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks. It was fun talking to you, Noah. Talking to Carl really brought home to me just how dependent we are on models for making sense of what's going on here. It's not only that they're everywhere, it's that they have the capacity to fundamentally shape our ideas about what we ought to do. Indeed, the very phrase flatten the curve, which has been a kind of motto for all of us in this early period of the pandemic, is itself language directly taken from modeling. And I can't think of the last time that a modeling term became our guide for how we should be behaving at the most fundamental level of our ordinary lives. Yet at the same time that Carl shows us the importance of models, he's also very attuned to the idea that models can be deceptive and indeed that they can lie. And they can lie, he says, if we fail to take into account, using our critical faculties, what's going into them. The problem, he says, is not that the models themselves are fallacious. It's that if the premises are wrong, we can be led to very, very bad conclusions. Carl is also closely focused on the question that we've been thinking about here at Deep Background and that all of us are going to continue thinking about going forward. Namely, how do we come out from behind our social distancing and slowly and carefully begin the process of reopening the economy. I promise you we'll be talking more about that in the episodes ahead. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.